The Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. who's a PhD student at the School of Geography in Queen Mary University of London. David interviewed Lucy in Helsinki a couple of months ago at the International Conference on Urban History, and Lucy's research looks at the representation of children in urban environments in British children's comic books in the 1930s. So you're not hearing David's voice at the moment because it's summer holidays, it's actually New Year's Eve, and we're in different places. I assume David's in Melbourne, but I'm up in Elmore in County Victoria, and I'm here with a few people, but one of them is my sister, Sarah Taylor. Hi. And um, I thought I'd put Sarah on because we we grew up reading British comic books. Yes, our dad would order them, especially to the news agency. For, I don't know why. Yeah, He's well, not like, British either. He's just an Anglophile. Yeah, Beano, um, Dandy, what other ones? They were the big ones. There were some other inexplicable ones, but Beano and Dandy. And Dandy was our main one with Desperate Dan. So pretty what, good name. what did you learn about uh, British urban environments from reading these comic books? Um, well, firstly, that there were some class divisions, but I guess you don't need a uh, comic book to tell you that. And secondly, the kids just seemed to roam around, which was amazing to me and I actually need to reconcile in my mind whether that was just a representation in comics or if that is what either... England or the olden days were like. Either way, it was completely at odds with my experience of being a child, which was very contained, and any outing you did was, you know, planned in advance, and you were basically getting from A to B. And the concept of a gang of kids just hanging around, like having adventures, completely foreign, obviously totally appealing, but. I think Lucy Lucy talks about that a bit in her uh, talk with David, where she's discussing the role of adults um, who are usually just sort of passive bystanders or occasionally outraged, but they didn't really exert any authority. Um, and she's looking at whether or not this kind of uh, gang lifestyle was was a subversion, like some kind of fa- a kind of strange fantasy, or whether it was uh, taking something real and, and, and representing it back. And David points out that it's, it's a bit different to have that kind of, you know, roaming free lifestyle is different kind of escapism than, say, des- you know, like things yeah. set in alternative... Desperate world. Dan was a completely alternative universe with an alternative superhuman person who was very strong um, and likeable character. He always got the front page, I noticed. Yeah, and his big so the front page was Desperate Dan eating his cow pies. and um, What's the difference between that and a beef pie? I don't know. It just put sounded... horns in it, I think. Yeah, they always had horns coming out of it. Um, he would have the front cover... And then as you'd go in, you'd get more and more obscure, sometimes quite dark comics. One about a little mean baby that didn't yeah, like its mum. Yeah, the children were very mean. <laughs> there was uh, Beryl the Peril, Dennis the Menace, and yep. that mean baby that was tormenting its mother. Yep. They would always be in pursuit of sweets. That's right. Um, was another uh, And they often only had one tooth though, anyway. Yep, yep. They'd have one tooth. Sometimes they'd be at uh, those funny, you know, British... Um, seaside resorts holiday towns wrecking their holidays they'd wreck their parents holidays and stuff like that but basically 
you know, sort of in pursuit of um, little kind of victories like getting sweets or winning a fight or, or stealing, stealing an object. Yeah. Yeah. And it seemed kind of fun, but there was a lot of fighting involved as well. Yeah. They had uh, one called, oh, there was booby beef and chips. Yeah. Um, and a few others where they basically like they represent it with these kind of um, bangs. What do you call them? Like biff, bang, whack. Wallop. Yeah. And often yeah. The, either the kids were doing it to each other or the parents were turned up and were mad that they'd broken something. And then it'd just yeah. be biff, bang, pow. Yeah. Yeah. I think there was one punch and Judy. Yep. Um, yep. And then it would sort of hilariously return to the state at which it started. Like they, you know, they might try out a new thing and then everything just goes back to how it was. Everything's ruined. But they somehow that was fun. They weren't at home very often. No. They were at home at the end of the day. Oh, very rarely. Or even more amazingly and excitingly to me, the parents would tell them to get out. <laughs> get out of the house. Go out, go run around and stuff. It's like that doesn't happen in 1980s Australia, at least not in my experience. You had to be at home as much as humanly possible or else going to a prescribed activity. I don't think they ever went to any uh, classes well, there was Bella the gymnast, but oh, she yeah. had she was an orphan and she had to take herself to class. Yeah, yeah. Her? Oh, yeah, I remember her. And she modelled herself on, uh, was it Nadia Komenitsky? Yeah, something yeah. like that. But yeah. she, she, I remember, she was only like 14 and she ended up working at one of those Butlins hot summer camps. Uh-huh, yeah. So basically a foreign, slightly appealing landscape, always a little bit dark. No one seemed to really like each other. Yeah, but the family, they, uh, and often many generations of a family in the house together. Yep, yep. Grandpa, like I think of these summer special ones they had where they... Grandpa would, would lose his teeth. Yeah, like <laughs> yeah. would go, and Grandma would be trying to get a nap finally, yeah. like on some, um, like on the summer special. Yeah, and then they'd land on them or something. Yeah, yeah. It, in part of their misadventure would culminate in destroying um, Grandma's five minutes of solitude. Yep. Um, yeah, they didn't like each other much. No, um, but they, they at least got to go outside, which yeah. is something. And but when they went outside, the weather wasn't very nice. Now, I was trying to think of how to um, connect it to my summer holidays here in Elmore and going to all the different swimming pools. I couldn't, because comic books are impossible to Google, I found. Mm-hmm. But I was looking for this one. This uh, One of the comics, actually, that Lucy and David mentioned is called... Oh, they mentioned Lord Snooty, but an offshoot of that was one called The Tufts and the, the, Tufts and the Tufts. Yep. And wasn't there one about the Scots and the... The uh, English people or That's something. Right, yeah, They're they... always fighting over Hadrian's Wall. Yeah, that God, it's so old country. Yeah, but yeah, the toss and the tuss was pretty unsubtle. Like they had yeah. three rich kids and three um, rough kids. I yeah. was googling it before actually. I found the comic strip, but I also found the origins of that term. Mm. And I guess the comic strip's probably based on it. There was a fa- an image, fairly famous image in 1937, published of five uh, boys, probably like 10 or 11. Uh, somewhere in London, I think they're at the ra- outside the races, mm-hmm. and they've got. Um, actually, I pull it up. Why not? Um, there's two kids in um, like humorous, like those kids do, in, like Richie Rich does, yep. and, um, and so on. They're wearing like little tuxedos and canes. Oh, and stuff like that. oh my gosh, that, that makes me think of that TV series Seven Up. Yeah, yeah. So there's two rich kids here, top hat tails and stuff and then there's three i guess they haven't got shoes on but they look like urchins and stuff yeah and this picture was published with the caption toffs and the toughs Mm -hmm. and it was taken to sort of represent class division Mm -hmm. um in britain um 
and that I think offshoot into um, comic strips, including Toss and Tuff, Tuffs, and also Lord Snooty. Lord Snooty, great Richie name, stuff great like name. That. But there was one uh, particular episode of Toss and Tuffs where um, they they have to. It's either a swimming carnival or something involving swimming. But it's mm-hmm. um, the Tuffs have to go swimming in what the British call a lider, the leader. Oh, I don't know. An outdoor swimming pool. Nice. Um, and it's so cold that when he dives off the diving board, it's icy and he bounces. <laughs> I actually remember that. Yeah, now that you mention that, I do remember that that scene. And there. then I, I can't remember what exactly the the Tuffs had, but I assume it was a heated indoor pool. heated pool of some description, which is not actually dissimilar to in Ballarat. They had that. I remember going to one of the private schools once and going, what the heck? They have their own indoor heated pool. Oh my gosh. And then all the really good swimmers were also from these schools. Amazing coincidence there. Coincidence. Just, um, yeah. And also the, talent. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. They're very good at that. Um, with the, the roaming kids, like they would, um, you know, in true kind of representations of class and uh, virtue, they would at least have their earthy virtues of toughness and honesty and stuff. Thinking back, what was partly appealing about it is that um, they didn't seem to be hugely gendered for memory because the girl was also kind of feral as well. Beryl. Beryl, Beryl the peril. Yeah. yeah, so they exerted their virtuous um, earthiness in just a pretty gender um if not neutral then at least vaguely balanced way they were united in their feralness although they had like uh, we also had hanging around which were much less interesting these uh slightly more i assume they were more aspirationally class i don't know Mm. um yeah girls annual and stuff like that they were the they were these uh comic strips that seemed to be targeted to a different yeah like sort of nancy drew but english and they were always gendered i assume nancy nancy drew is american i don't don't know. know Just that the movie was American. I don't know. So they were explicitly girls and boys and yeah. girls. But and from like... that I would gather that a marker of being... Again, this is like the outsider's view of what it's like to be English. Um, the marker of what it meant to be a well-bred young lady was to be really, really decidedly, you know, neat and, um, you know, not running around and doing that kind of thing. Yeah, and the, yeah. In the, the kids in the uh, Beano Dandy Whizzler or whatever it was called... Um, were forever like they had visible scuff marks. And, yep, they always uh, had bandages on their knees and, and scuffs. Socks. Yep, socks mm-hmm. in disarray. Yeah. Oh yeah, the socks never matched, and their teeth were bad. But that's all English people, right? Or is that me? Just uh, yeah, actually, I actually don't know. Yeah. Well, I, should, actually, I don't know. Yeah, you think they have like a, a national health service? Maybe they have. I don't know. They mm. do seem to have terrible teeth. Yeah. Wasn't that that joke thing? The big British book. Uh, of smiles or something like that. If you Google that, <laughs> so it's, I think it's a Spike Milligan thing. Right. Ask the internet. And big British. And the Toss and Tufts kids, like when I first saw um, Seven Up, the you know the TV show where they follow kids around. This is from The Simpsons, <laughs> and it shows uh, uh, Ralph like ca- cowering, <laughs> covering his eyes. I assume if there's a British problem with teeth, it would just surely relate to their yeah. They're, um, uh, yeah, I'm sure it was a... Oh, a real... No, that's just a uh, playing card yeah. from Manchester United, Steve James, and he has humorously bad teeth. But, like, historically, English would have had a unprecedented, um, almost unsuppressed access to sugar, basically. Yeah, because of the... Because of the empire. Yeah. So, they, you know, and the whole thing with cookies... Not, not, what are they called? Biscuits and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Cakes and biscuits and stuff is just seems to be a really 
popular thing in, in England and that's just not really good for your yeah. teeth. One final comment with you because I it could be a real thing, the big book. Can you put Spike Million in there too? I'm just, wondering yeah. whether, is it real or is it just something in The Simpsons, which is another place where I got half, half my information about everything. Yeah, I got, I reckon fully 50% of my knowledge of the world, quote, knowledge of the world, mm. formed before age 18, came yeah. from Dandy and Bingo, mm-hmm. the Phantom comic. Yeah. Uh, Donald Duck, who's remarkably informative. They're actually really accurate. When you read them now, you're like, no, that's still, you know, can't fault that. They just change a few, like they went to Shrangila and stuff like that. Um, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. I was about to, I was about to uh, allege that you thought that was real because it was in The Simpsons. Yeah. The Simpsons, actually, now I watch it and I realise um, they were saying something. Like we were saying about the infant yeah. monkeys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was the best of times. It was the blessed of times. Stupid monkey. Uh, the actual book by Spike Milligan is called uh, <laughs> Teeth uh, by Spike Milligan. Yeah, it's pretty good. Oh, is it a poem? Anyway, it's a, it's a it thing. is a thing. Right. So we're getting too many banging noises of summer now. So yeah. I'm going to hand over to a couple of months ago in Helsinki in Finland, David Nichols interviewing Lucy Lachine of School of Geography, Queen Mary University, London, discussing British comic books or the representation of children in British comic books in the 1930s. EAUH 2016 conference and I was really taken with your presentation yesterday which was largely about I guess the representation of urban environments can we say in British children's comics of the 1930s so there are a few things that I found really intriguing about that partly because I'm interested in um, that general sphere so I'm interested in comics but I'm also really interested in the way that that these, um, you know, that society is reflected in, let's say, in British children's comics, which are, mm. uh, for a long time in the 20th century, there seemed to be, it was a very uh, unusual, almost it's almost its own world in mm. in a way. Uh, so when it comes to actually reflecting on society, uh, it's uh, it has an unusual skew. But there's a, there's so much to uh, analyse there. Mm. Uh, and this is not a question. This is just me <laughs> sort of talking off the top of my head. But uh, can you tell us? Maybe you could. Maybe you could tell us uh, quickly what what your paper covered and and what you found from your own research so far. Yeah, um, and thank you for saying <laughs> that you found it interesting. And it's really great to know that somebody else is interested in in representations of urban space in comics because I haven't really come across very many people, who, other people who are. Um, working or interested in that. Um, My paper was, I was looking at, um, as you say, 1930s comics. I've I've only, my research is fairly, in fairly kind of early stages, so it focused on three comics. Um, And I was really interested in how children, in examples of groups of children playing in urban space and whether to what extent they're sort of playing with or transforming or uh, constructing urban space, um, to what extent comics were able to show new types of urban space. 
and trying to kind of ask some questions about whether um, comics are a form that can show urban space as something that's changeable or whether they are sort of replicating a very static view of, of urban space. Um, and I think comics are also, uh, one of the things that really drew me to, to them is that they, um, they are an urban form, for one thing. There is something re that's read in the streets and that's read in urban spaces. Um, and I was, I'm kind of interested in exploring whether children reading comics can, to some extent, place themselves in the characters, whether they're able to sort of see themselves as transforming urban space, or whether comics in some way prompt them to mm -hmm. at least play with or explore urban space in a, in a different way, um, which is quite a hard thing to get at. But um, that's, yeah, so that's sort of some of the things. I mean, I, I, I was discussing in particular two examples, two storylines, and I think the one that I kind of talked the most about is this great series called Casey Court, which is sort of just single frame stories, as it were, um, a series of episodes, but they're just so full of movement and so full of kind of, um, uh, they're a moment in time, but there's so many things happening in those images and they really kind of spoke to me. And I'm, I was lucky enough to find that that was one of the things that I found very quickly in the comics. So I was lucky enough to find something really interesting um, to talk about. Yes, so, so tell us a little more about the, the Casey Court because it's, mm. I'm, I had never seen it before. You had no. some images in, the, in your, uh, when you spoke about it and it's, were there recurring characters week after week? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, so Casey Court was a complete surprise to me. It's not something I've come across being written about before, being researched mm. before. Um, and I started looking at the comic um, called Illustrate, which is called Illustrated Chips, which is where Casey yeah. Court appears, was running a has quite a long period of time. I started looking at it in 1930, and the strip was certainly appearing from then. I don't know whether it's how long prior to 1930 it was appearing. Um, the characters, there seems to be this recurring lead character who... So it's a, it's a large group of children that are portrayed in each... Uh, vignette um, and they're sort of they're both boys and girls but it's some of them there are far more boys um, some of them it's a bit more equal but there's a there's a sort of gang leader that's talked about in the um, text that's underneath the image um, whose name I'm just trying to remember but he, he so he's certainly a recurring character and the children the other children are very much part of his gang. There are some other named characters. Usually the rest of the children aren't named um, and they're drawn in a fairly... They are distinct from each other within the picture but I can't say that I've noticed any defining characteristics necessarily that you sort of see running through the comics. Um, but there are, yeah, there are some named characters and I'm not sure exactly yet how much they're going to be sort of Reoccurring, but they don't seem to be. They don't seem to have particular characteristics. They don't seem to be have particular roles. So in that sense, it almost shows children in quite a, I suppose, a sort of homogenous sense yes. of these particular children. And I think they're working class children. Is is worth pointing out. Yes, and you assume and that the readership are working class. You assume. 
we, I guess we probably don't know much about the thought processes that go into producing materials like illustrated chips in the 1930s. We don't know what sort of um, readership is being envisaged. I mean, we, I guess we know that in the, you know, publications like that start out as sort of adult humour mm-hmm. publications and then become children's, but mm-hmm. by 1930s, obviously very much a children's uh, thing. Yeah. And, you know, I can sort of imagine... I can imagine that some children reading something like that at Casey Court would be um, projecting themselves into the the narratives, you know, either as you know a named character or as a. But once again, can we know? We probably can't know unless you know of any <laughs> I research on this. Yeah, there's uh, certainly research on readership is is very limited during this period. The, there's a study that I talked about, in particular in Manchester. Um, it was basic. It was mo- more um, interested in an, in an older age range than would be the court, the main than the study assumed would be the main target of these comics. So it was looking at twelve to fourteen year olds, um, and this and it certainly seems that within that age group, um, it was the the children that were attending schools that were more likely to be working class were the people that had the higher percentage of readership of comics but I mean there's lots of sort of issues with that study and uh, I think it probably needs more looking into as well because um, it's been presented in in a certain way by the author Um, sales figures are hard to get hold of but they were these are comics that were being completely mass produced being sold in vast quantities so in terms of sort of they certainly weren't just working-class children reading them, but there does seem to have... There are discussions which indicate at the time that there was um, distinctions being made that possibly children, at least families, um, would... Uh, children's parents from more middle-class families are more likely to want to direct their readership to... These are the sorts of comics which aren't seen as as respectable, I yes. suppose, is, yes. is say, saying. Um and you were also saying about um, whether children would have identified. And we had a really interesting conversation about this. I'm not sure if you were there straight after, after the paper, mm. which was that, of course, the, the subjects of, the, of this strip are probably lower working class. There's, um, there's some signs within the image... I mean, I've talked a bit about these sort of markers that it's... a poor urban area and the signs that say um, uh, that the boots mended and washing done so the the jobs that the adults are doing are fairly casual low skilled jobs so there is a, and there's a sort of element of possibly petty criminality that sort of runs through the comics so there's certainly a suggestion that they're lower working class and therefore we mustn't necessarily assume that the children reading them would have identified because they may even if they're working class they may still have had that distance and been look, slightly looking down on yes. children on the other hand I, they're so so engaging I think that there's this they're doing something where they're on the one hand you are looking down a bit on the subject I mean this as a researcher I felt like as a reader you're to some extent looking down on the subjects and to some extent sort of just getting so involved in in the kind of joyousness of the strips that you're you are feeling more connected. Um, and it, the other thing is, of course, the other issue, of course, is 
it's very difficult to know how real the children reading, how, real, how much the children reading the comics would have felt like they were actually representing working class children because they weren't working class writers yes. of the comics strips. But uh, that must be, that, that would be individual to every reader, I'm, I'm sure. So it'd be, yes. it would be hard to, uh, yes, and of, of course. course, all those people are dead now. So we, <laughs> we, can't, we can't know anything about them and what they felt. I'm really interested in the form of the Casey Court strips mm. because they're not strips; they're one, you know, single frame. And they and you talk about how they are located in a in a place, mm. uh, the same place each time. It is actually Casey Court. Or um, it does vary a little bit. Um, it, it varies, but probably ostensibly, it, it varies for to suit the story in inverted commas. Yeah. But it it's the the idea is yeah, they're kind of they're slum kids in a way, yeah. and they. They have this one little bit of, you know, little junkyard area that this little bit of waste space that they uh, explore imaginatively, yeah. Which I think is is fascinating for what it tells us about the the possibilities. Let's say it's London or or any other big British city, the possibilities of the um, of the city uh, for for children either as they imagine what the possibilities might be or as they actually see them. Is there any, are there any examples in, the, in Casey Court of them, um, you know, exploring the urban fabric? Um, I suppose it depends what you mean by exploring the urban fabric. There are examples of... I mean, one of, the, one of my favourite images is the image which is called Casey Court House Builders, where the children are actually building a house mm. in this court. Um, I mean, it's sort of tumbled out. Yeah. <laughs> and, there were, and there's a kind of joke about them trying to sell it to, to one of the other kids, you know, and, and the fact that it, it's also falling, kind of falling down at the same time. And um, So there's, in that sense, the, I, I, one of the reasons I find that interesting is knowing, I mean, the area that I'm most interested in is London and East London, knowing about the slum clearance and, regener- and rebuilding schemes that were happening at the time and seeing an example where children are built, doing the exact, that exact thing. Um, but I don't know what I'll, I mean, it, could you give me, could you explain a little bit more about what you mean I'm about thinking about, and I'm... I'm sorry, I'm not fam- really familiar with the strip, and I saw the images that you you showed, but I, it was a lot to take in. Um, <laughs> I guess I'm thinking about them um, to use a 21st century notion. Are they are they recycling stuff they find lying around? Are they you know the house that they built? Are they building that out of you know scrap? Yeah. Yeah. That that kind of yeah. stuff, and also whether there's any uh, other reflections on what it might be like to be a street urchin, mm. for want mm. of a better term. Mm. Um, yes, yeah, so the, the to answer your first point um, there's a lot of recycling a lot of recycling things that are basically junk um, but also in a kind of completely over the top way in the sense that I'm sure most children would not have had access to that quantity of stuff and that sort of fairly strong quality stuff but I, I, I'm tr- I can't think of an exact example but um, there's certainly sections where 
I th- in, things like soap boxes being used um, and um, other I mean there's a, an example where they build a tank but it's out of sort of bits of wood and scrap and um, so there's quite a few references to the former uses that some of this stuff has had. The house example, I think they are actually building out of bricks, but they're obviously waste bricks of some sort. So they're definitely repurposing kind of waste material, possibly also sometimes stealing materials, but, but materials that aren't, are of relatively poor value and are creating things that are of a relatively high value in their meaning rather than in their kind of um so like recreating a restaurant or recreating a police court or recreating i mean there's a ship building but again it the the ship is built out of quite poor quality materials and quite quite low quality materials the other references that there are to street urchins is they talk a bit about there's a few it's more i'd say in the text underneath the image possibly but they talk about the need to make money um there's sort of suggestions that they may that they're working in some way although clearly they're supposed uh, my reading of them is that they're supposed to be school-aged children and so you were talking about part-time casual work around school or maybe they're skipping school I don't know but they're I think they're of that age range um because of course at this period most people most children are in school till 13 14 and I think the characters look like they're younger than that um and they also there's also a few references to as I said petty criminality at stealing things um or speculating making money but generally they're making money from each other rather than outside forces so are there authority figures that come into the frame very few um there is a policeman who comes in and and in in comics the comics in general police figure quite a lot um and in casey court as in other strips in other ways um the police it's all about subverting that authority, the children getting their own back on the policeman in some way. There's an example where they make a guy, you know, like a guy forks for, for um, but it's of a police, the policeman, and the policeman is coming in and sees it and is angry. But it, I, I can't. I'm sure there's some way that they that they um, the police is going to get something thrown on him. You know, there's, they're not actually going to be able to use their authority against the children. The other authority figures is there are a couple of adults do appear um, and in a couple of ways. One is just as just as very static onlookers who don't seem to be, who seem to be fairly approving but not offering any kind of, they're not, they don't have any voice within those images. Um, and then a couple of times uh, adults appear as chasing children trying to get back belongings that they've taken to use in their constructions. And again, but they, they're obviously um, supposed to... I, I would suggest that they are supposed to be parental figures, certainly local figures. And again, they, there's no sense that they can actually act their authority. So although they may be voicing it, although they may be authority figures, they're not acting in positions of authority. And actually, this, the leader of the gang is the one that has authority, uh, in, at least to... Um, 
he's the one that sort of starts off whatever the activities that they're doing and and otherwise it's a fairly um anarchic uh sense of authority with the children kind of battling each other in some some ways fantasy in a sense or a lot of readers probably would have seen it as a as a fantasy fun you know part, being part of a gang um yes getting away with with a with a bit of mischief those kinds of things in that uh, somewhat gritty setting and and we can't know whether the sorry to keep saying we can't know it but we can't know i guess it, this is what intrigues me like was the is the gritty setting are the readers going to go, yeah, that's just like the place around the corner from me, the yard out the back, or are they going to be saying, I wish I could, you know, be down in the East End or, or wherever, yeah. being a part of that gang? And, it, and it's such a it's such a hard... Mm. I'm not sure that we can ever fully answer that question or, or answer it, but it is worth sort of trying to understand these strips within the context of the rest of the comic. And... A lot of the comic stories, um, both the comic strips and cartoon strips and the short stories which accompany them, are in much more, um, uh, what's the word, Um, exotic surroundings. There's lots of kind of American settings, um, colonial settings, um, school stories which are in... public schools which again most of the readership were not in public schools I think we can fairly safely say that Um, and so completely unfamiliar settings so I think if we see the urban representations within that context we can at least perhaps suggest that there would there is more of a sense that they are they are a subversion of somewhere that could be real rather than an escape from um, the sort of everyday environment. Into, it's, it's transforming an everyday environment, even if it's not an everyday environment that's intimately connected to the everyday environment of the readers. Um, I want to kind of explore that more in my, in my, as I go on with my research and see, look at that a bit more closely. But it's not escapism in the way that going to... The Wild West or is escapism, and I think that is interesting. Now, the escapism thing is the, the, the Lord Snooty story, and you also you talked about the Lord Snooty strip as well, which mm. is a more conventional narrative strip, yeah. and it is, uh, as you say, about a obviously moneyed young noble mm-hmm. who has a whole a bunch of, I guess. Do we, would we say working class friends? Is that yeah, so? They're they're kind of, or at least they're they're everyday and ordinary. Oh, they're working class, yeah, right, yeah, okay. yeah. And and what do you take from that strip? Yeah, um, I do find it quite interesting because it appears a lot later, and yet it's in some ways much more conventional, and it falls within a more traditionally conventional um, series of stories about. Uh, the aristocratic I mean he's aristocratic but aristocratic or at least middle class people um, adults really more but and children um, sort of 
and their and their kind of tra- traversing into working class spaces, um, interactions with working class people, where but there are um, secondary characters, secondary characters um, in in fiction, um, partic- and particularly perhaps in the urban settings, um, and. Lord Snooty, who is an, is an aristocrat, and, and it's very, there's a lot of sort of, I mean, that's another fantasy in a way, because there's a lot, he lives in this huge mansion. and this He does, but he's actually, despite his name, he's not at all Snooty, is he? He's actually, no, he's, he's totally <laughs> egalitarian, strange that yeah. he's called Lord Snooty. Yeah. Maybe he's from a Snooty family, I suppose, yeah. and it's just his surname, but. It's a, it's a sort of, maybe it's a sort of, uh, British sarcastic thing, I don't know, um, nickname, but um, you're right, he is actually, a lot of the time, he, use, he uses his working class friends to undercut the um, snobbishness of his sort of uh, class, I suppose, um, and of authority figures, again, and all that sort of thing. Um, but they are sort of being used, I suppose. Um, they certainly, they don't have as much of a voice as he does they certainly don't have as much they're not the ones coming up with ideas they're not the ones sort of pushing them forward um and as i said they are clearly working class because again um well the, even the name ashkan ali is clearly linked to a working class kind of semi semi-industrial um but res but residential sort of space um but as I discussed a little bit, there are representations of new space in the comic, in those comics, and they, and because they are a narrative, I would. This is the other interesting thing about form, because they are a more conventional narrative strip. I perhaps might have expected to see there be more idea that space changes, um, because you're going through time within the narrative, and in actual fact, I found them to have far less idea of that. Maybe it's because the actual frames are much smaller and and you can't show visually as much happening within each frame but I don't think um, but I don't think that you really you get that undercutting of authority and you get the kind of um, but at at the end of the day Lord Sneedy goes back to his mansion the kids go back to their alley does anything change? <laughs> it did nothing change, and that strip went. I, I assume that that was in the Dandy, right? It was in Bino. It's in the Bino. Bino, and yeah. you know, it doesn't still exist, does it? It doesn't. Uh, I think Lord Snooty carried on to the certainly to the seventies. I think maybe even later. Yeah, yeah, I think he might have been brought back later, yeah. right. <laughs> Re- reinvented. Mm. Um, apparently, there were quite a lot of changes, mm. and at one point he did become Snooty. Oh, really? <laughs> or, or there was a kind of modern version where he's actually. Oh, I know. Yes, it's his son. There's a modern like version where it's his son, and he's actually stuck up. Uh, uh, he, yeah. Okay. Which is another, I suppose, and another interesting thing about comics is the way that they sort of continue it's ideas continue and yet are completely transformed for different generations so um i guess what we haven't covered is exactly what your interest is in the 1930s because you're looking at these in the 30s mm. i guess the depression a mm. uh, time of time of urban renewal as well what what exactly uh, how does this tie into your research more generally and and what is it about the 30s and those uh, and that material yeah 
Um, yes, it's a good question, what is it about the 30s? Um, and my research as a, as a whole at the moment is focused on the 30s. And I think I find it of interest because a lot of research on... Partly a lot of research on children, but also a lot of research... There's been a lot of research about the changes that happened in British cities after the Second World War, and a lot of stuff is seen as coming out of the Second World War, um, and a lot of sort of ideas about um, providing new spaces, providing play spaces, um, ideas that children are... Um, children's play is important... Um, is, is seen as, as being a direct result of the Second World War. So one of the questions I have with my research is, is this present before the Second World War? So the end of the 30s is kind of one counter to one kind of point of why, I've cho why I'm looking then. And then you're right to point out the Depression. Um, and also the... I mean, in Britain, I suppose 1929 is slightly less of a dramatic... Um, point than it is in other countries because there was or there was recession after the First World War as well, um, but I think in the 30s you particularly see. Um, I think you do see a bit of a change from the 20s, and you do see an interest. There was interest in slum clearance and rebuilding throughout the 20s and 30s, but I think, but certainly in the second half of the 30s, there's more progress with that um, within a London context, anyway. And there's more. Uh, you get some slum clearance orders um, introduced, um, and overcrowding clearance orders introduced. So you get the uh, you get the idea of um, that there are these spaces that need to be changed, which has existed for far longer, of course, but in a systematic labelling way that you might be. And so you get this this fact that people may be living somewhere that is within these these orders or right next to these orders. Um, so that's one of the things that interests me, um, I th and and kind of some of them, the, I suppose, seeing the thirties as a fairly modern period, and I think also what what I talked a little bit about in my presentation is that the thir I think the thirties more than the twenties are looking to the future more sort of specifically, not always optimis optimistically, but I think even in the pessimistic look look looking towards the future. Um, I think it's probably a mistake to see it as either or, and actually, often those things are sitting alongside each other, um, and so making debates about the changing city really important. Um, and you was also just saying why why comics or why well, how why does it fit why, within yes, my that particular that particular research material that particular mm -hmm. material what what drew you to that I guess and yeah. and what does that how does that reflect your ideas there yeah. Um, my, so my, my overall research is trying to look at representations of um, children's urban play um, in the 30s in, in London. And I really wanted to combine fictional and non-fictional sources. Um, and I wanted to include sources that I knew that children would have been consuming. And sources that I thought might, might portray... Um, urban spaces, and so and one so one of the things that really drew me to comics was um, 
that, as I said before, they were read so widely, they were an urban form, and yet 30s British comics haven't really had that much studying. Certainly, I don't think anyone has really looked at whether they are representing urban spaces. They, they, the interest in comics has tended to be looking at other areas. Um, and um, I think the fact that comics, unlike other forms of children's literature, possibly more influential possibly than other forms of children's literature, and um, certainly read by working class children, not just middle class children, so read by the sorts of children that would be living in the spaces that I'm interested in. Um, but I'm also hoping in, in the future to also be looking at sort of um, how people interested in introducing new children's spaces were presenting them, and also possibly kind of children's writing of the period and, and autobiography um, to get some sense of how children actually were, to try and get a little bit of what effect is this happening on children, I suppose, or how are children narrating their own experience, yeah. and does that follow some of the ways that comics are, are doing it. Taylor and I think that's about it happy new year's